Right, thank you, Michael. Hey, good to see you this morning. Uh, my name is JD. I'm glad to be here. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Just going to work through this text. It's a rich text. It's a wonderful text. And um, it's in your, your handout as well. But uh, glad to be here. Thankful uh, for Sean for giving me this opportunity to be here. Uh, love this church. Love Sean. Love, uh, love what you guys are doing here. Love having a like-minded church uh, in this city uh, on the same uh, mission that we are. And so we're thankful for you guys. We pray for you guys often. And I know you pray for us as well. So thankful for this church. Uh, Sean is a much better preacher than I am. Uh, but I'm a lot better looking than he is. So I know that's a low bar, but that's, so that's the trade-off here this morning. So uh, we, uh, we, we have plurality of elders like you do at our church, and so I'm able to slide over here. I have one of our elders preaching for me this morning in our services. Uh, so thankful for uh, like-minded churches that allow us to, to do that. And I hope you're encouraged by this text this morning. Uh, we simply just walk through books of the Bible verse by verse at a time like you guys do. And, and um, this, this is a text that uh, I preached recently and just was very impactful not only to me but to our congregation and uh, just a lot, of, uh, a lot of richness in this text. Um, first question I want to ask this morning before we start getting into the text is, uh, why were you saved? Have you ever thought about that? What was the purpose that God opened your eyes to the beauty of the gospel and drew, him, drew you near to him? Was it, was it just to save you from hell? And don't get me wrong, that is a part of why you were saved. But if that's all it is, then we're missing out on a, a, an even higher purpose than just cosmic fire insurance. See, salvation doesn't just change what happens in the life to come. Salvation changes our lives now. And that's an important thing for us to highlight as we get into this text, because uh, this is what the author of this text, Paul, uh, is writing to the church in Corinth. Uh, Corinth is a city in Greece, it's rubble now. I've been to it and walked through the streets of, of uh, Corinth, and it's just, it's, a, it's no longer there. It's just rubble. Uh, it it uh, went, uh, it uh, died uh, a few decades after the writing of this letter, but in, in that time, it was a very, a very large, thriving city, a metropolis in that area in Greece. And Paul is a guy who was changed by the gospel. His life was radically changed when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he went from trying to kill Christians to becoming one of them. He went from trying to destroy churches to planting churches and planting them all throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, one of the churches that he started was in Corinth, modern-day Greece, and he, he planted the church in the year 49 A.D., he left there, he would, his pattern was to go to a city to uh, preach the gospel, and then he'd gather those that responded to the gospel together into a church. He'd train them and teach them and equip elders to lead and govern and teach those, uh, that, that, that local flock, and then he would move on to the next city, and he would do the same thing over and over again. Well, he has left the church at Corinth by this time, 
And he has uh, heard through the grapevine, through, through, uh, through people that have come from Corinth, that false teachers had come into the church and were leading God's people astray. And so he writes the letter of 2 Corinthians to prepare them for a visit because he needs to come back and he needs to clean house a little bit. Uh, he needs to have some, some difficult conversations with some of the false teachers that had come into the church and they were leading God's people away. And 2 Corinthians is a letter preparing them for that visit. And he's, the, whole cha- the whole book is just preparing, just kind of teaching them, okay, this is what it means to be a Christian. And he gets into this chapter, chapter 5, verse 11, and he's going to point to the change that should come, that should be evident in our lives when we're followers of Christ. So let's look in verse 11. Let's just walk through the text here a little bit at a time. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, and we'll pause there, fear of the Lord doesn't mean I'm afraid of God, it means I, I have a reverent awe towards God. It means I, I, I am, I'm, I'm afraid of letting him down because he's loved me so much, I, I want to have a fear of the Lord. That's what it means to fear the Lord. So knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing this reverent awe we have towards God, we persuade others. So that's what we do, right? So a Christian doesn't live for themselves. Now that's harder than it may seem because we live in a very individualistic society, don't we? Where the focus is on self, right? Just take care of yourself, focus on you, don't worry about anybody else. But because we hold God in such high regard, we don't live for ourselves. Instead, we live to persuade others. Persuade others of what? Well, persuade them to do what every Christian has done, to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus for salvation. All of your life is about that, persuading others to, to trust in Jesus just as you have done. But what we are, back to the text, but what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not what is in the heart. Now that's what's going on kind of behind the scenes to understand that text is that he's referring here to those false teachers who had come into the church. They were criticizing Paul and his ministry. Uh, Much of the letter is Paul trying to restore his reputation against these false accusations. They're making up lies about Paul. They're talking about how crazy he was. And he kind of embraces that. Look in verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, meaning if we are crazy, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. So he's kind of saying, yeah, we kind of are a little crazy. You know what? If we seem a little crazy, it's because we're crazy about God. Right? But if we haven't lost our faculties, especially when it comes to you, Corinthians, we're clear-headed about wanting you to know how much God loves you. Now that's kind of important for, especially if you may be here, maybe you're a visitor here, maybe you have uh, had a bad church experience before. Um, some, maybe you've had, you know, you've been out of church or you've come back, or I don't know if that's your experience or not, but uh, I understand that. We, in, in the family of God, we have some crazy uncles, 
We have some people that are a little crazy sometimes and, and, and do some strange things. But, but here's why we may seem a little crazy sometimes as church people. Look in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Some translations say compels us. Because we have concluded this. Here's, here's why we may seem crazy sometimes. That one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So it's, it's God's love that has completely changed us as individuals. That's our motivating factor. It's not guilt, it's not anger, it's not it's love is our is the is the fuel in our tank. It is the motivating factor. And he explains that love like this that one died for all, therefore all have died. Now that's a little bit of a confusing statement there because there's there's a theological debate surrounding who is the all here. Is that all people everywhere or just all Christians? And I won't get too deep into this, uh, but here's kind of my take on it. When he says the first all there, <clears throat> that one has died for all, well, that means that Jesus died so that anyone can be forgiven when they come to him in faith, repenting of their sins. Anyone can, meaning, meaning no matter how bad your past life was or how, who you used to be or who your parents was or who your parents were or whatever you did in your past life, none of that excludes you from coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what that, but what does it mean that therefore all have died? Well, it, it can't mean that all people everywhere, that all, it can't mean that, that people die to them, it can't mean that, all, that people die to themselves and follow Christ because we know that the Bible doesn't teach universalism. Right? This isn't referring to everybody here. This, the Bible doesn't teach that all people are on just kind of different paths and we're all going to the same place. No, that's, that's contrary to uh, the teachings of Scripture. So I believe the all here is referring to what the Bible calls the elect or just true Christians, genuine Christians. Uh, Jesus died for everyone, meaning that anyone can be saved, but only true Christians will be saved. Because we don't know who the true Christians are. We evangelize to everybody, don't we? We preach Christ to anybody who may come, yet we have the confidence uh, that, that those whom God knows, that who God preordained, that God saved, will respond to the gospel message. And that's the those who live in verse 15. Now, there are some who would differ with me on that translation, and that's fine. It's one of those open-handed issues that we can disagree upon. But, but in verse 15, 15, he's talking about those who live. I mean, those who have died to their old selves, and now they live a new life in Christ. Those don't live for themselves anymore. They live for the one who died for them. That's verse 16. From now on, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Now he's talking about who he used to be before he became a Christian. Think about who you were before you became a Christian. 
Now, I came to Christ at an early age. I was seven years old, so I wasn't like you know a killer or anything. I was just a little kid who heard he was a sinner in need of a Savior and responded to the gospel. But I know some of you in a crowd this size, probably some of you came to faith later on in life. Maybe you remember there's a stark contrast between who you were and who you are now in Christ. And before Paul, Paul's one of those people. He, he can identify with you because he, he, before he became a Christian, he looked at Jesus and Jesus' followers according to the flesh, meaning from a worldly point of view. You know, he saw them just as cult members who were against the, uh, the, the, uh, the Jewish um, religion at that time. Now, now he sees the world differently. When we come to faith in Christ, we, we put on a new set of glasses, really. We, we see the world differently. He now sees every person as someone for whom Christ died. That's, he no longer regards them according to the flesh. I want to challenge you this week. To, for every person that you meet, look at them and tell yourself, Okay, this is a person for whom Christ died. Every person you meet, the person who cuts you off in traffic, uh, the, the, the lady at the checkout register who's rude to you, the, the, the person who says a lie about you, wh- whoever it may be, especially the people we kind of get sideways with, look at that person and say, just remind yourself, this is a person for whom Jesus went to the cross for. This is a person for whom Jesus died for. Remind yourself of that will change the way you interact with people. That'll change the way you respond to somebody who does something uh, negative to you or, or says something about you. Remind yourself that, that Jesus went to the cross so that this person may come to faith in them. See, that's what happened to Paul. Paul used to look at people according to the flesh. Now he sees from a different perspective. And that's why he can say in verse 17, which is the, one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. This is the one you need you know, up on your mantle somewhere, tattooed on your forehead, somewhere where you can see it a lot of times. This is an important one. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What a wonderful verse. When you follow Jesus, you don't become a new and improved version of yourself. You become a new creation. So there's a big difference there. We're, this is not about self-improvement. This is not just becoming a better me. This is becoming a new me. Old me is dead and gone. I don't want to be that guy. I want to be more and more like Jesus. I want to be less and less like J.D. You get a new you. The Bible talks a lot about God's people being new, about being a new creation. And I want to, fact, I want to give you ten ways that the Bible says you're a new creation. So if you're a note taker, I like that you guys have a place to take notes on your, in your worship guide there. If you're a note taker, you've got plenty of space here. I'm going to give you ten ways that you're new, and, and I'm going to uh, give you a text to look at later on. We're not going to read every text because uh, we don't have time. I know you guys eventually want to have lunch today, so we're not going to read every text. But I do want to give you that. Maybe this afternoon you can open your Bible, read some of these texts for your own, and see how we're called to be new creations in Christ. Number one, you have a new Lord. 
You have a new Lord. Romans 6, 16 through 18. Romans 6, 16 through 18 talks about how we go from being slaves of sin to slaves now to righteousness. We have a new Lord. We're no longer at the beck and call of our own sinful desires. We have a new master. So when you're tempted to sin, you just say simply, no, you're not my Lord anymore. I used to do what you told me to do, sin. I used to do what you commanded of me because you were my, I, was your, I was your slave. You were my Lord. But now I have a new Lord. I have transferred my trust from, from, from the old self to the new self, and now I have a new Lord. Therefore, I no longer need to obey what my old Lord tells me to do. Your old boss comes and tells you what to do. You don't have to obey them. You have a new boss now. That's your old job. You don't work for them anymore. You can't boss me around anymore, boss man. You have a new boss. Now you do what that boss says. You have a new Lord. Number two, you've been given a new heart. Not only a new Lord, you have a new heart. Ezekiel prophesies about this in the Old Testament in Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27 talks about God giving us a new heart. And we need a new heart because, for instance, the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah would teach us that we can't trust our heart. Have you ever trusted your heart before? Have you ever thought, well, my heart's leading me to do this? And you look back and think, well, that was a bad decision, heart. What were you thinking? I should not have listened to my heart. It's not always good to follow your heart. If culture is teaching that, just follow your heart. No, your heart's wicked, deceitful. Who can trust it? That's why you need a new heart. When you come to faith in Christ, you get a new heart. You also get, number three, a new community. A new community. 1 John 1, 3. 1 John 1, 3 talks about how we're brought into fellowship with other believers when we come to faith in Christ. A fellowship that, that includes not only a local church family, but... Uh, brothers and sisters all throughout the world. We're in this new community together. You and I, because we're followers of Christ, we, we have a bond. We have a, uh, we're, we're brought into this new community together uh, by the Spirit. Number four, we have a new identity, a, a new identity in Christ. And this is found in Colossians 3, 9 through 10. 3, 9 through 10, talks about how we put off our old self and we put on a new self. It uses the, the language of changing clothes. You know, I go from wearing these old ratty clothes that are dirty and stinky and I put on new, fresh, clean clothes. That's, that's the new identity, right? So, so many times we wrap our identity in how we dress and what we look like on the outside. And, and coming to faith in Christ is similar in that regard. We are a new identity. We're no longer who we used to be. And a lot of times the enemy's tactic is to remind you of how wicked you used to be. Well, when that happens, you just remind, hey, that's, that's my old self. That's a, I have a new identity. I am no longer who I used to be. I'm no longer who, who sin said I was. I am now who Christ says I am. And he says I'm loved. He says I'm forgiven. He says I'm, I'm, I'm a part of his family now. And so we have a new identity. Number five, we have been given a new mind New mind in Christ. This is find this in Romans twelve two. Talks about how we are being transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
Right? The way, even the way we think and the way we see the world is transformed after we come to faith in Christ. Number six, we have new emotions. New emotions. Galatians 5, 16 and 17 talks about walking by the Spirit, not by the flesh. Right? Even the way we just go through, the, go through life and go through the world is different because we have these new emotions. We're not governed by our flesh anymore. Now we're governed by the Spirit that is inside of us. Number seven, we've been given new desires New desires, 1 John 4, 7. talks about how we love the things we used to hate. And now we hate the things we used to love, right? Now those, we still have old fleshly sinful desires that are still a part of our creation. And we're always going to be battling those until we're glorified and see Jesus face to face. But on the whole, a Christian should have desires that are being replaced. Good desires that are replacing the bad desires we used to have. But there are things that we used to hate, and now as Christians we love. Like, why are you people praying all the time, going to church, and you know, reading your Bible? Now, as a Christian, you're like, oh, I see it now. Prayer gives me life. Going to church benefits me and encourages me and builds me up. And reading my Bible fills my mind and, and heart with Scripture and truth. Now I, I see the benefit in those things when before they were just, you know, drudgery, the things that I didn't like to do, things that my parents made me do. I don't want, you know, now I see it. And we even have desires that we used to love and now we hate. You may have had sins in your previous, before you became a, a follower of Christ, you were like, why did I do that? Why, why did I fill my, my time doing that or those things? Now you've been given new desires. No, you no longer even desire those sins. That should be the, 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 the evidence of a Christian, uh, their, their new desires taking the place of old desires. Number eight, you've been given a new power. New power. Not only new emotions and desires, but a new power. Romans 8, 12, 13. Romans 8, 12 through 13 uh, talks about how we put sin to death by the spirit that is inside of us. So when you come to faith in Christ, you get power in you. Now that's that's kind of cool. If you're like a superhero person, you like you know you know like whatever super you know Superman, Batman, you know whatever Marvel. If you're DC, Marvel, whatever, you you have your you know pick of if you could have any superpower, what would it be? Well, guess what? When you become a follower of Christ, you get a superpower. Now, that superpower is not to you know, move buildings or levitate or fly or shoot laser beams out of your eyes or anything like that. The power that you've been given is now in you to kill sin. That's the power that you have inside of you now. You now have the power to kill the sin that's in your life. Before, you didn't. Before, you were powerless over sin. You were doing what your nature told you to do. But now, you no longer need to sin because you now have power inside of you to put that sin to death. Right? That's by the Spirit that is inside of us. Not because we're strong, not because we're all that. It's because God's Holy Spirit dwells in us and now equips us to go to warfare against that sin. So you've been given a new power. Number nine, you've been given a new freedom. Romans 6.6, 6, new freedom. We're no longer enslaved to sin, as I said earlier. We are now free to follow Christ when before we were enslaved to our sinful desires. 
And then number 10, we've been given new life. Just in general, new life. John 10.10 talks uh, where Jesus says that he came that we may have abundant life in him. So these 10 things, the, the question for us is this, are these things true in your life? Do I see evidence in my life that I have a new Lord, new heart, new community, and on and on and on? Is there evidence in my life that I have this new creation inside of me? That's a difficult question to ask because there are days where I can say, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not nailing this list like I should. And that's where we repent of sin. That's where we go back, and that's where we, okay, where God, shine the light in the dark places of my life. Lord, where do I need to put that sin to death? Where do I need to change? What do I need to do to change? And that's, that's where we become new. That's where we become who God wants us to be. And look in verse 18 as we continue. All this is from God. That's an important part of this whole thing. Right? This is not just pulling your bootstraps up and figuring it out yourself. All this is from God. This whole new creation thing is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself, meaning brought us back into relationship with him and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation, that's what we're saved to do. Right? It's not just to get out of hell. We're saved to a mission, to a purpose, a ministry of seeing people who were alienated from God because of their sin being brought back into relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what we live for. That is, in Christ, he's, here he explains the ministry of reconciliation. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against this against them and entrusting us to the message of reconciliation therefore we are ambassadors for Christ god making his appeal through us we implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to god all right reconciliation that's our purpose that's why we're saved that's why God rescued you. Re- reconciliation means restoring a broken relationship. How was our relationship with God fractured? It wasn't anything that God did. It was what we did. We sinned against a holy and just God. Jesus comes to reconcile us to the Father, but it didn't stop there. When we were reconciled, we were then given a, given a mission to see that reconciliation happen with others. And he uses the language of being an ambassador. Right? When you are saved, you become an ambassador. Who's an ambassador? Well, that's someone who lives in a foreign land but represents their home country. We're ambassadors. We're representing our home. We've never even been there yet, but we know it's coming. And we are ambassadors into this land, into this world, with a message. And what is that message? Be reconciled to God. How do I do that? Through surrendering my life to Jesus Christ. By putting my faith in Him and becoming a follower of Christ. Which leads, in verse 21, to one of the clearest, most concise definitions of the gospel that we have. Look in verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And there's a lot in that. Let's unpack that. For our sake. That's the first three words there. That's a declaration of God's love for you. You've probably got all sorts of reasons why God shouldn't love you. But for our sake, for my sake, for your sake, Jesus came. He sent Jesus for your sake because he loves you and he wants to be reconciled to you. And the one who knew no sin, that's Jesus, God made Jesus to be sin. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus became a sinner. It means that Jesus took on the punishment of our sin. It means that God treated Christ as if he were a sinner. And Christ became the object of God's wrath and bore the penalty for our sin. So he becomes sin. We become the righteousness of God. This is what Martin Luther called the great exchange. He takes our sin, the penalty for it, at the cross And in return, he gives us his perfect righteousness. Say, there's an illustration that if you've been around church a while, you've probably heard an illustration similar to this. Imagine you're driving home, if you have a license, uh, or if you don't have a license, this may work either way. Uh, Imagine you're driving home, and you're, you're, you're cruising at a good 110 miles per hour. Right, that's, uh, that's pretty much 6th Avenue right here. I, I, I was stuck here like for 45 minutes trying to get out of this parking lot earlier this week because uh, everybody was driving about that fast. Uh, so, um, so imagine you're driving 110 miles per hour. All right, you get pulled over. At that point, they decide, okay, we're doing more than just writing you a ticket. We're going to impound your car, and you are going to have to come uh, to court and stand trial. And you're thinking, okay, well, I, I was speeding, uh, but, okay, I've got, I've got good news because my dad is the judge. Right, so imagine your father is the judge and he loves you, right? He, he's, he's a good dad. He'll let you off, surely, right? But then you remember, oh, wait, he's not only a good dad, he's also a, a good judge. And he doesn't punish the innocent. He, he only punishes the guilty. He, he's a good and just judge. And so you're thinking in your mind, okay, well, I've got to go to court and stand before my father, who is a loving father, but also a, 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 a just judge. Which one of these will win out? Will his love win out and he'll let me free? Or will his justice win out and he'll send me to jail or make me pay a fine? So you go stand before your father, the judge, and he looks at you and he says, Son, this officer says that you were going 50 miles per hour over the speed limit. How do you plead? And because you're guilty, you look at your father in the eye and you say, I'm guilty. Because yes, you are. He says, okay. He says, that will be $500 or a week in jail. That's the just reward, just punishment for that sin, for that crime. Now, you don't have $500, all right? So you, you're, you're, you know, can't write a check, can't pay that off. You don't have a $500, so the bailiff comes to take you to jail. Your dad, the judge, 
stands up, takes off his robe, comes down, writes a $500 check, and he hands it to you. At that point, you can either accept it or reject it. And what would you do? You'd accept it, right? And in doing so, your father shows you that he is both a loving father and a just judge. He's not one or the other. He is both. And this is what your heavenly father has done for you on the cross. This is how he showed that he is holy and merciful. He doesn't just let you off scot-free. Oh, it's forgiven, no big deal, just sin, not, not a big deal. No, it is such a big deal that he provided a way for you to be forgiven, but he remains holy by paying or by taking the penalty for your sin. Jesus becomes the object of God's wrath in your place for your sins. That's the meaning behind this text, that he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Now chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, I think they messed up when they divided the chapters here because these two verses are, are kind of the call and response to this text. And so in verse, chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, and here he's quoting Isaiah 49, 8, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. In these two verses, he's saying something to Christians and he's saying something to to non-Christians. To the Christian, he's saying, don't receive the grace of God in vain. Meaning, if you are truly a Christian, there will be evidence that you're a new creation in Christ. Your life will look different. Not perfect. That won't happen until you see Jesus. But you will be making progress. You will be waging war against sin in your life. It will be on display in your life, the change that God has made in your life. That's what he was saying to the Christian, to the, to the non-Christian, to the unbeliever. He said, you've heard what Jesus has done for you on the cross. You, you've been given, you've been offered that check that pays the penalty for the sin that you committed, for the crime that you committed. Do you accept it? Do you accept his free gift of eternal life? Or do you reject it? That's the question for us. So Christian, will you live that new life in Christ? Non-Christian, will you put your trust in Jesus this day? Let's pray. And today, if you want to trust in Jesus for salvation, you can do so today by by trusting in Him, by putting your faith in Him, and beginning the the nonstop work of repentance from this day forward. And going public with that decision through baptism and and joining a faithful Bible-preaching church like this one, where you can unite with fellow believers and begin to grow spiritually and help others grow spiritually. So Lord, I, I pray this morning for anyone in here who wants to become a Christian, you would give them the courage to take that next step of baptism, 
and begin the, the nonstop work of following you from this day forward. And Lord, I thank you this morning for reminding us that you're making us new, you're changing us to be more like you every day. Lord, would you show us areas in our lives where we're failing? Would you strengthen us to put that sin to death in our lives? And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.